Well, beloved, um, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. And the truth of that proverb was illustrated a week ago here in this pulpit. And I need to uh, come and, and um, confess my error and ask your forgiveness. So last week in a sermon, I made the statement that the word Christian means little Christ. And uh, it does not mean that. And uh, someone so kindly pointed that out to me very gently and after the service. And I appreciate that. And so I regret uh, saying that because it wasn't true. The word Christian actually means uh, Christ follower or Christ people along the idea of someone that is completely identified with Christ. So purge that from your memory banks. Somehow it got into mine incorrectly and so I don't want it to be in yours. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together uh, this morning as we open the word of God and uh, Father, how important it is that we understand the word rightly in each and every aspect. And so we pray your spirit would uh, just be with us this morning as our teacher. I pray that, that your spirit would help me to speak only that which is true. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So we start out this morning. I want to ask you a couple of questions to just get your thinking going. And my first question for you is about marriage, and that is, why does marriage exist? Why do we have marriage? What's its purpose? What's the purpose of marriage? Is it a, a man-made convention? If so, then it would be Subject, it would be flexible and subject to the changing and prevailing opinions of various societies at various times and places throughout history. Is that what it is? What does the Bible have to say about marriage? What does the Bible have to say about marriage? And so what I want to do is, is to have you turn to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to turn this morning with me to Genesis chapter 2 because I want to go back to the very first marriage. And I'm taking this slight detour from our study in Ephesians because Ephesians 5 is going to assume a fundamental understanding of Genesis chapter 2. So rather than me make that assumption, I thought we would spend this morning here in Genesis chapter 2. Because marriage is God's invention, it's not man's. So it is not subject to prevailing opinion and it is not flexible. In fact, marriage is a creation ordinance. In other words, God gave marriage in the very beginning of history. And because he did that before sin even entered into the world, Marriage is what's called a creation ordinance. In other words, it, it is binding by God upon all human beings across all time and across all cultures. How the various cultures express the truths of it will no doubt have some variation, but the fundamental underlying principles of marriage go all the way back here into the Garden of Eden established by God himself. Now, I want you to take a look here at this text in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24, 18 through 24 of Genesis chapter 2. And I want you to drop down to verse 24 as we begin here this morning, verse 24. And I want you to notice that in verse 24, it says, for this reason. For this reason. And I want you to, to see that statement here because what we have is an, an editorial statement. This is the, a statement that provides an explanation for marriage. 
And in Matthew chapter 19 and verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells us that it is God's editorial statement. That it is God's words himself who says, for this reason. In other words, marriage exists for a reason. And what reason is it? It is for this reason that he speaks of here in verse 24 and following. So as we begin to unpack that reason, we need to look back a little bit at the events of the first day. Okay, the first day. And so what we want to note here in this first day, the, or excuse me, sixth day, the, the, um, the sixth day of creation, not the first day of creation, but the sixth day of creation, I want to look back and I want, and I want to look with you at the events of, of what was going on here in this sixth day. And I want you to know, first of all, is that man was alone, okay? That man was alone. We see that up in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It is not good, verse 18, for the man to be alone. And it's really interesting, this statement, it is not good, because it occurs in a context where God has been saying repeatedly that it is good. So over in chapter 1, verse 4, we see the statement that God saw that the light was good. And in Verse 10 of chapter 1, God called this, uh, he called the, the uh, gathering of the water seas, and, and God saw that it was good. And in verse 12, we have the, the vegetation and so forth, the creation of vegetation, and that was good. And then over in verse 18, the separation of, of day and night, and light and darkness, and God saw that that was good. And down in verse 21, we have the creation of the, the sea creatures and the birds and so forth, and, and that was good. And then down into verse 25 of chapter 1, the creation of the land animals, and that was good. And so each and every day of creation, as, as God um, uh, forms and fills this creation, he repeatedly says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And now he arrives here, and in the midst of the sixth day of creation, he makes this surprising statement that it's not good, that it's not good. Now, he has created Adam already earlier here in chapter 2, right? Uh, verse 7, then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And he has placed Adam in the garden and set him about the task of tending the garden, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And later in this day, he's going to form Eve, right, the woman, but, but now, in, at this moment in time, where man is here in the garden about the task that God has set him to, God says it's not good. It's not good. In other words, there's, there's something incomplete here. There's a, there's a, that, the, that the work of the sixth day is not yet done. Now, notice this is God's evaluation. Again, verse 18. This is not Adam's words. This is God's words. He says, the, the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good. And, and he is emphasizing that reality here, that as, as he goes about the work of the sixth day, at this point in time, something's wrong. Something is wrong. There is a problem, as it were, in paradise at this point in time. Now, this statement, it is not good, is not a statement of, of morality. He's not, he's not stating that there is something immoral going on here. In fact, what he is talking about is that there's some kind of a deficiency in the creation of the sixth day at this point in time that will enable it to fulfill the purposes that God has for all the events of the sixth day. Again, when we look back at chapter 1, after the, the, the creation events of every single day, he says it was good, it was good. In other words, that each and every aspect of the creation is going to do that which it's been created to do. But here in the sixth day, at this point in the sixth day, there is something wrong. 
There's a problem here, and this deficiency has to be resolved. Beyond that, I want you to to see that the deficiency uh, finds its root cause in, in God himself. That he is evaluating his own work at this point, and he is saying that my work is not yet good because there is something missing. There is something missing. And that he is going to resolve, as we well know later, the problem here in paradise. But at this point in time, there's a deficiency. Something's not right. Something's not right. And what is it that's not right? Verse 18, man is alone. The man is alone. Adam is alone. That's not good. That's not good. Now, when we think about this, and uh, notice, we'll just keep reading here, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. This is what's not good, is that Adam is alone. Adam is alone. Now, when we think about that for a moment, the, the reality that, that, that God opines that, that Adam's solitude is not good, we can learn a few things uh, and extract some principles that are important for our understanding of marriage and community. And the first of those principles is simply this here in verse 18. It's that human beings were not designed to live in solitude. God did not design you and I to live in solitude. Now, just thinking about this, Adam is not alone in the absolute sense of the word, is he? It's not like Adam is in solitary confinement or some black box or something like that. He has a relationship with his creator. So he is not alone spiritually at all. He is in relationship to to his creator, God. Furthermore, he is in relationship to the creation itself. They are subservient to him, right? He has been set over them. He's been placed in the garden, verse 15, to cultivate it and to keep it. And and he's going to name the living creatures and so forth in in exercising his, his dominion mandate with the creation. So he's he's not alone in that sense. And yet. He's still deficient. He's still lacking something. And what he lacks is a relationship of equality. He lacks a relationship of equality with another of his same kind. Right? Notice uh, verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. And you kind of get the picture. He's looking around and he sees that there's, you know, there's Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. and Mrs. Cow and Rhinoceros and on and on it goes, right? But he looks around and he says, there's, there's only me. There's only me. Now think with me on this. This statement that is not good for the man to be alone is to recognize something fundamental about our humanity. Something fundamental about our humanity. And it's this, that that isolation, isolation is not the divine norm for human beings. It is not how God designed things to be. And the reason that's true is because we are made in the image of the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So we are made in the image of the triune God. And this God, the only true God, is eternally in fellowship with 
one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, a loving, eternal fellowship that has existed from eternity past and will exist to eternity future, if we can say such things. This loving, inter-Trinitarian fellowship is the reason that we are created in the first place. Love gives, right? Love gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So love gives. And because God is love, he shared the fellowship that he enjoys, Father, Son, and Spirit, in an outgoing way through the creation. That makes you and I, made in his image, inescapably relational. Inescapably relational. We are, we are brought into existence as, a, as humanity, inescapably relational, vertically with God himself and horizontally with each other. That's why it's not good for the man to be alone, because to be alone is to be contrary to the very nature of his creation and creator. And I want you to notice here that the community, as it were, begins with Adam and Eve at the most intimate of levels. And then it's from that point, from husband and wife, that, that this community begins to spill out through children and societies and, and so forth. So it all begins here. That makes the husband-wife relationship the foundational primary human relationship. So human beings were not designed to live in solitude. Secondly, animals are no substitute for human companionship. Animals are no substitute for human companionship. God doesn't say, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will give him a dog. The dogs are wonderful uh, animals, most, some. <laughs> Your dog, no doubt. And, and can, can provide a lot of, of enjoyment and comfort and things like that, but it, no part of the created order can fill the hole that has been divinely placed within us for a relationship with human company. And <clears throat> that becomes clear to Adam here in verses 19 and 20 as God brings the various animal classes to Adam and parades them before him, right? The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and, and, and Adam names them. And by naming them, he, he demonstrates his dominion over them, his authority over them. And in the process of doing that, I think what Adam comes to realize is the validity of God's statement that it's not good that he's alone. In other words, that, that as Adam is serving God, he recognizes that he has a need. He has got a need. He's got a big need here. And, and this is a teaching device that I believe God uses to arouse within Adam the, the recognition of his need. And gentlemen, I would say that this is just instructive for us. If you're thinking about marriage, it is as you are serving the Lord that you will encounter your need for a helpmate in that process. And so... Adam, as he's about the business that God set him to, he recognizes something's missing. He's alone. The other thing he recognizes is not just that he is alone, but secondly, that he is deficient. So he's alone and he's deficient. As I said, if it were simply companionship, then God could have done other things. But there is a deficiency here within Adam that has to be 
resolve. Verse 18 again. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This word helper is used in the Old Testament a number of times by the Lord himself in reference to the Lord. It's a wonderful term. It's a noble term. It means one who gives aid or support. One who gives aid or support. For example, in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So God is the helper of Israel. And it's the same word that we see here when God says, I will make a helper suitable for Adam. So helper is a, is a glorious kind of, of term that, that defines this first woman's purpose. Right? She is to supply what is lacking in this man. She is to provide aid to this man. She is to, she is to emulate God who will be later said to be the helper of Israel. She is Adam's counterpart. What he lacks, she supplies. And together they are able to fulfill the dominion mandate. Again, back to chapter 1, verses 26 and following, which is to fill and to multiply and to subdue the creation, right? And the Lord God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made him male and female. He created them. He blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, Adam can't do this by himself. He needs a helper. He needs a helper. And not just any helper, again, verse 18, he needs a helper that is suitable for him, corresponding to him, like him. And so God creates Eve, the helper of Adam, so that she would exactly meet what he needs. She would fulfill the deficiencies in him. She was the perfect complement to him. The perfect complement to him. And this reality of this, of this noble purpose for Woman, Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. Help if I get to the right place. Here we go. He says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So she was Created, she was brought into existence in order to provide what is missing in Adam. And she corresponds perfectly to fulfill his deficiencies. Well, in what way? Well, here's a few ideas for you. Uh, mentally, she fulfills what is deficient in him mentally. In other words, they share an intellect together that transcends the rest of the created order. And out of this shared intellect comes creativity, comes planning, comes purpose, comes ingenuity. All of those noble things that characterize humanity come from this first couple together. She fulfills what is missing relationally. In other words, there's now someone to converse with, someone to comfort Someone to encourage, someone to exhort, someone to admonish him, someone to laugh with him, someone to cry with him. She fulfills what's deficient in him spiritually. She is someone to pray with him, someone to sing together with him, someone to worship with him, someone with whom he can, he can discuss the word of God together with. 
She fills him. She completes him spiritually. And she completes him physically, right? Together, they are able to create life and, and fulfill the command to, to uh, multiply and fill the earth. So, so physically, they correspond to each other. What's deficient in him, she provides in their physical relationship. And then finally, vocationally. She vocationally completes what is missing in him. In other words, she has been brought in to fulfill certain roles in which he is deficient. And further revelation of Scripture talks about some of those roles. And what are they? Well, she manages the home. She manages the home. She raises the children. This is the message of Proverbs 31. It speaks over and over in Proverbs 31 about that role. We see in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where the older women are to, to instruct and teach the younger women, right? How to love their husbands and how to love their children and how to be workers at home. These are the domains of, of a mother, of a, of a woman, created to fulfill that which is missing in a man. So she, she aids him in his work wherever it best helps him. But she has her own domains. She has her own domains. So here's the big takeaway here. And in the creation of woman, God provides to Adam someone who is equal in relationship. Equal in relationship. In other words, she is made in the image of God just like him, but is different in role. She fulfills a different role. They are not interchangeable. They, are, they, they can't swap out functions. There is man and there is woman, and they have been created to fulfill certain distinct roles. Now, uh, we don't really know what Adam's first words were. We don't know the first words that Adam ever said. But we do know what his first recorded words are, and they were something like this. Wow. Okay. Take a look at verse 23. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We get a sense here of, of the animation of, uh, in Adam's voice by the threefold repetition of the pronoun, uh, this one. Literally, it would be, and the man said, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. In other words, whoa, I now have a partner. I have a partner. And, and he recognizes that reality. Now, this expression... Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is, is more than a, than a statement about substance. He's not just saying, you know, she's made out of the same substance as me. Okay? It's, it, it actually, and, and you can trace this down on your own, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1, we find the same expression. And there it's an expression of a covenant commitment. A covenant commitment or a, or a pledge of loyalty. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. We are, we are peeking in on the very first wedding ceremony, right? Notice verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he, that is God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. You just get, that, get the idea that, that, that God acts as the father of the bride, if you will, and, and escorts her down the aisle to her waiting husband. And then there is this wedding ceremony in which there is, a, there is a commitment made, a covenant pledge of loyalty from him to her. So, so what can we take away from all of this? What we take away from this is that the 
purpose of marriage, remember that's our question, what's the purpose here? The purpose of marriage is companionship between a man and a woman. For this reason, verse 24, what reason? For the reason that it is not good for the man to be alone, therefore God creates, God brings this special creation to Adam and there is a wedding ceremony in which there is a pledge of companionship, a a covenant pledge of companionship. But it's not a casual companionship. It's a a special kind of companionship of of the very deepest nature. And it's brought about by the means of this covenant of of faithfulness and loyalty that the man expresses. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now we see this idea used in other places in the Old Testament. So we can be pretty confident that this is exactly what's going on here. So, for example, I'll turn you over to uh, Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 17. And you see these twin ideas of of companionship and and covenant placed side by side. So in in chapter 2 here, it's uh, in verse 17, there's there's a warning here about the adulteress. Well, Who's the adulteress? Verse 17, she's the one who leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So you see companionship and covenant placed side by side in the context of marriage. If you go to Malachi, right? So the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, right before Matthew. You go to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. And you see the same thing where where God here is is chastising Israel for her faithlessness, and in particular, her faithlessness to the covenant of marriage. And um, he says, uh, verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife, By covenant. So you see it again. It is companionship brought about by a covenant relationship. Okay? Not a casual companionship. I'm back to Genesis chapter 2. You can turn back there. It is not a a casual relationship. It It is a deep relationship. It is a covenant relationship. On that basis, we can answer the question, what is marriage all about? You ready? We have an answer for this question. What is marriage all about? Here is, a, here is a biblical textbook definition of marriage for you. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Marriage is a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman with God as witness to its validity. Let me give it to you again. All right, this is a wedding ceremony in a nutshell. Marriage is a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman with God as a witness to its validity. Now, what are the components of this covenant of companionship? What are the components to the covenant of companionship? Well, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. All right? So for what reason? For it is not good for the man to be alone. So God creates Eve, brings her to Adam. There is a a pledge, as God witnessed to, of of a covenant of companionship with he and she. And for this reason, right, The man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In this statement here, in verse 24, we can find the two main aspects of the covenant of companionship. What what makes the covenant of companionship? And the answer is twofold. It is relational exclusivity, and it is sexual exclusivity. 
The covenant of companionship is comprised of of two aspects, relational exclusivity and sexual exclusivity. In other words, it is a man and his wife that are relationally exclusive of all other relationships and are sexually exclusive of all other sexual relationships. Let's take a look here first at relational exclusivity. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Stop right there. Selah. Think about that. Adam doesn't have a mommy and daddy. Does he? So why in verse 24 does God make this editorial statement? The reason God makes this editorial statement is because he is defining for all time, for all humanity, the relational exclusivity of the marriage covenant, this covenant of companionship. Right? Adam doesn't have any parents. So this is not written for him. This is written for his descendants. It is written for me. And it is written for you. So a man shall leave, it says, his father and mother. Now this this verb leave is used frequently in the Old Testament to describe Israel's rejection of their covenant relationship with Yahweh. So it's talking about severing something, rejecting something. You can find it in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16, if you want to trace it down. So, for this reason, a man shall reject his relationship with his mother and father, and he will be joined to his wife, right? The, the verb here, joined, you could be cleaved, right? We, we could translate it to cleave or to cling together, to keep close together. And this word, this verb is used again in the Old Testament in a number of places to speak of the maintenance of a covenant relationship. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, where Moses writes, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. That's the same verb, to cling to him. Deuteronomy eleven twenty two. For if you are careful to keep all this commandment which I am commanding you, to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. Same verb. So what is God saying here about this covenant of companionship? He is saying that to, in order to establish this covenant of companionship, that a man must sever one relationship and establish another it is to sever the relationship with your parents and to, and to establish the relationship with your wife. It is to stop clinging to your parents and to start clinging to your wife. Now, is God saying that when you get married, you know, you never give your parents a phone call? No, you better call your mom. Okay, just a little word of advice, call your mom. But what we're saying is that, that something has changed here. Something serious has changed. And, and that's the kind of serious language that he's using here. There is, a, there is, an, there is an actual severing and, and, a, and, a, and a clinging that reestablishes a new home. There's, it is a multiplication that comes out of this. That allows us to say, beloved, that that a marriage relationship is the most intimate and, and the most sacred of all human relationships. It's the only place we're told to sever and, and reestablish. And what this means is, is that all other human relationships, right, it, the most intimate relationship a person has is with their parents, with their family. So if you're to sever that and, in order, and establish this, then what we're saying by extension is, is that every other human relationship must give way before the marriage relationship. Your parents, 
Very important, but not more important than your marriage. Your children, very, very important, but not more important than your marriage relationship, husband and wife. Your friends, your family, your business associates, all kinds of human relationships that are, that are invaluable, uh, that are valuable and are important, but can become a wedge into a marriage, and, and that's wrong. It's wrong. This is to be the premier human relationship of exclusivity. Secondly, it is sexual exclusivity, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And here it is. And they shall become one flesh. And they shall become one flesh. In other words, when they come together, they are, they are to deem themselves to be entirely and insolubly united together as if in reality they are one person. They shall become one. And the, and the oneness here is, is pictured in the sexual union between a husband and a wife. It is pictured in the sexual union. It is further illustrated in, in the um, conception and, de and delivery of children, right? So a husband and wife become one through giving birth to, to babies. Oh, he's got dad's eyes and mom's disposition, whatever, you know. It's crazy, right? We look at these little packages and we're all trying to figure out who they look like and whatever. But they are the product of one. They, are, they, are, they, are, they illustrate the oneness of it. And it is the failure, it is the failure to maintain the exclusivity of the sexual relationship that destroys people. And it destroys communities and cultures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, he says, flee immorality, right? Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So this sexual exclusivity in marriage, interestingly, is not just a private matter. It's not just a private matter. It's not just between two individuals. Actually, in ancient Israel, there was a recognition that the community had a vested interest in the, in the sexual exclusivity and fidelity of a marriage. The community itself cared about such things. And the reason they cared about such things is because in, in Leviticus chapter 18... God says, the reason I drove the Canaanites out of the land before you was because of their failure to maintain proper sexual boundaries. You can read it for yourself. And then he goes on in verses 24 to 28, and he warns Israel that if you do the same thing that they did, I will drive you out as well. So the community recognized they had a vested interest in the fidelity of each and every marriage. And that has been the understanding of the people of God from the beginning. The church has a vested interest in the fidelity of each and every marriage that is part of this church. Beloved, that's why marriage is celebrated as a community event. That's why it's a community event. That's why in ancient Israel, the whole, the whole village would turn out for the marriage. Why? Because this is a big deal and we're vested in it. And they wouldn't just turn out for the party. They were there for the ceremony and the party that followed. And if you think about it, this is why we invite people to our wedding ceremonies. I mean, why do you send out a list of invitations to come to the wedding? What, what is it you want from people? Why not just invite them to the party to follow? 
But you invite them to the wedding ceremony. Now, you may not know exactly why you did that, so I'm going to tell you why you did that. Okay? Or at least why you should have done this. The reason you do this is because it is everybody's business. It used to be in the old days that they would say, does anyone have a reason why this marriage should not occur? Let him speak now or forever hold his peace, right? In other words, the community has a say in this thing. We invite people to our weddings to witness our vows. To witness our vows and then to hold us accountable to those vows. By coming alongside us and praying for us and encouraging us and and preaching the word to us and praying for us and admonishing us. They're part of the deal. So what is a marriage all about? It's a covenant of companionship. What are the terms of the covenant? Relational exclusivity and sexual exclusivity. Third question this morning, very quickly, is what does the covenant symbolize? What does the covenant symbolize? And the answer to that is found back in our text of Ephesians chapter 5. So turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32, Paul says that the Christian marriage reveals the mystery between Christ and his church. That is what marriage, the covenant, symbolizes. The covenant of relational and sexual exclusivity, the covenant of companionship, symbolizes the relationship between Christ and his church. It reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. And we know this to be true because four times in this passage, Paul compares the roles of husbands and wives to the relationship between Christ and the church. You see it in in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. In other words, Paul is saying that that marriage established way back in the beginning, before the fall, has something to teach us about Christ and his church. Every marriage. Now we further know from our studies in verses 18 through 21, right, that the the ability and the motivation for husbands and wives to, to, to fulfill their roles and responsibilities in marriage to to paint a a good picture of Christ in the church comes by being filled by the Spirit, verse 18. It's It's the outworking of being filled by the Spirit. To the extent that we are filled by the Spirit, then then we will rightly portray our roles. And we will demonstrate to the world Christ in the church. Right? Christ's servant leadership, the church's willing and loving submission. But I'm going to leave you with this. If we reject the Spirit's teaching and leading in this area by refusing to fulfill our God-given roles, we still paint a picture of Christ in the church. And the reason we still paint a picture of Christ in the church is because Because God has designed it that way from the beginning. In other words, you cannot avoid painting a picture through your marriage. Every marriage paints a picture. The question is, what kind of picture are you painting? Is it a a glorious, accurate picture of Christ in the church? Or is it a distorted caricature of Christ in the church? But paint a picture you are. May God help us as we begin to study next week in detail what Paul has to say here.
beginning in chapter 5 and verse 22 of Ephesians, as we come to really understand our roles in this thing, I pray that the Spirit would help each of us, each of us, to fulfill that for which we have been created and designed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for it because it is, the, it is one of your many good gifts. It is your idea from the beginning. And it has been provided to us in order to fulfill that which is deficient in us. And Father, I, there is no greater joy than a Christian marriage. And there is no greater sorrow than a marriage that is far from Christ. Oh Lord, may you, may you work in each of us, those of us that are married, to, to think seriously about our marriages and, and our vows and, and what it's all about. May you help us. And Father, those who are not married and those who have been and have personally known the, the pain and the tragedy of a broken marriage, may you help them, Father, not to be discouraged, but to recognize even in these truths your goodness and kindness to them. Father, may Foothill Bible Church and the marriages represented here be an evangelistic witness to our communities. For we live in a world that is very, very confused about such fundamental things. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, pray you will go in peace. We'll see you next week. Oh, actually, next week is our Thanksgiving service. I said we were going to do Ephesians 5, didn't I? That was wrong. In a multitude of words, transgression is unavoidable. You would think I would learn. So our Thanksgiving service, the following week you come back, we'll hit verse 22 of chapter 5, okay? God bless you.